Herod's bloody banquet that led to the beheading of John the baptizer, Jesus hosts a banquet of his own in the wilderness. I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 6, Mark's gospel in chapter 6. As we think together about the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, says in beginning in verse 30, kind of leading up to that episode, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. They've come back from one of their mission trips. And then because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them, ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Seeing the large crowd move Jesus because they saw, he saw them as sheep needing a shepherd. And beyond our more sentimentalized notions of that imagery, in the Bible, the idea of a shepherd is a ruler, an authoritative leader, one who gives direction. It was often used of a military leader. And what Mark the Evangelist, the author of this gospel, writes next makes this meaning even clearer. For Jesus' compassion and concern for a leaderless people expressed itself in teaching them many things. Remember what Mark told us at the very beginning was the central theme of Jesus' teaching at the beginning of his gospel. Mark 1.15, now is the time, here comes God's kingdom. So change your hearts and lives and trust in this good news. Today, there's such an indifference and even hostility towards truth and so much skepticism about knowledge that we might find it surprising that for Jesus, his deeply felt compassion for the lost expressed itself in teaching them and teaching them a lot. But remember Matthew 11? There Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. By what means will we get the rest? Take my yoke. It was a metaphor for teaching, for a rabbi's teaching. Take my yoke, my teaching, upon you. Learn from me. Not the current sources you've been using, to learn about how to live. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And you'll find rest for your souls. For I'm gentle and humble in heart. That's the kind of teacher I am. And my yoke compared to the one you've been wearing is easy. And my burden comparing to the one, compared to the one you've been carrying is light. We underestimate that much of our misery comes from our profound confusion about who we are, indeed from not knowing whose we are, 
or why we're here. Ever since our fall into sin, we human beings are just no good at finding the way of peace, the way to shalom. There are ways, the Bible says, they seem right to us, but they keep leading us to dead ends, literally, again and again. But Jesus knows the way. In fact, as we'll see again in this episode and the meanings that surround it, we'll be reminded that Jesus himself is the way. But even in the midst of this kind of teaching that Jesus gives because he's having compassion for those who are like sheep without a shepherd, the disciples become preoccupied about how late it's getting to be. Which, I guess in a way, is a plausible concern. It says, by this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. It's plausible, but it does seem a little bit odd to me that by this time, being with Jesus, they don't credit him with being aware of what's going on. In any case, I'm sure Jesus' reply caught them off guard when he answered, you give them something to eat. Now, again, 5,000 will hear, are here, 5,000 men. That means plus women and children. So, you know, who knows, 9,000 to 10,000 people are gathered. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we going to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? The disciples are swept away by the magnitude of the problem, just like Moses had been when confronted with the need to feed all those Israelites in the wilderness. And this is the first connection that Mark wants us to see between what's happening now with Jesus, with the people of God in the wilderness, and what the Lord had done with his people through Moses in the wilderness before. Everything now depends on Jesus. And so he says, how many loaves do you have? Go and find out. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them. That's the move we've got to learn to respond to. Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Jesus takes total charge of the situation, and the person who knew their Bible or their Bible history would recognize echoes of the Old Testament and the directions Jesus was giving out, because Moses leader of the people of Israel out in the wilderness, had organized them into groups of hundreds and fifties. And hadn't David the psalmist written about how the Lord as a shepherd lets his people lie down in green pastures? And so these people now are lying down in the green grass. And hadn't Yahweh the Lord provided bread in the wilderness for his people before? Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Mark doesn't tell us the content of Jesus' prayer, but we can imagine Jesus beginning at least with the words of the table prayer that was common in Judaism at that time. 
Praise to you, O Lord, our God, King of the world, who makes bread to come forth from the earth and who provides for all that you have created. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. When Hollywood does a movie about Jesus, you never know what you're going to get. But every now and then, it gets it fairly right or fairly good. And the recent one, Risen, I was struck when there were, and there was only a little bit because about the resurrected Jesus. And Anyway, there was a miracle of Jesus healing a leprous man. And old Hollywood back in the 70s or 80s when I used to watch and that was the Bible stories, they would really water down the miraculous some way. And it would, you know, they'd come up with some alternative explanation. I mean, there are ludicrous things. It'd be like, Jesus wasn't really walking on the water. It was an optical illusion. He was walking on the sandbar, and that faked the disciples out. Just you're like, blah. But this time, it was the healing of the leprous man, and he looked hideous. And then Jesus touched him, spoke to him. And the next time you see the man... His skin is as clear and he's as whole and as healthy as can be. That's the kind of miracle that Jesus actually did. And with five loaves, two fish, somehow 9,000 plus people were fed and fully satisfied. The important thing is this. In this miracle, we're seeing a preview of the kingdom of God. There won't be hunger or scarcity in the kingdom of God in the return of the reign of God. Here is the kingdom of God functioning, the God who gave manna in the wilderness and who made miraculous provision of food for his servants Elijah and Elijah now gives to the people their daily bread and yet in a hidden way. And they all ate and they were all satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And then again, the number of the men who had eaten was 5,000 plus women and children. This meal from the Messiah is a preview of the final return of the reign of God at the end of the age. The people that day experienced rest in the wilderness and were nurtured and nourished by the faithful shepherd of Israel. But their time with him pointed to an uninterrupted fellowship in the consummated kingdom of God. And in the center of the event, naturally and rightfully, stands Jesus. He creates the situation. He arranges everything pertaining to the meal. He orders the camp and camps into their groups, takes and breaks the bread and divides the fish, and through his hand, the miracle unfolds for those who have eyes to see. The crowd that was described as a sheep without a shepherd have now received from Jesus, the good shepherd, all that they need so that they lack nothing and are fully satisfied. But what is striking is that as we see here actually in Mark, as he reports the event, none of these meanings are spelled out or reflected on. 
He recounts what happens, this extraordinary miracle of feeding 5,000 men plus all the women and children, but he says nothing about its significance. He says nothing about how people respond to it. Nothing. In fact, what comes abruptly next in verse 45 seems a little startling. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Why does he do that? Why does he send the disciples away, and why does he personally direct the dismissal of the vast crowd himself? This is one of those messages that, not unusually, by the time I was preparing it, there was way, way more than one message worth. So part two comes tonight uh, in the evening service at six. It's the Lord's day, by the way, not the Lord's morning, so you can rejoin us tonight at six o'clock. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. So again, there's no meaningful comment or interpretation or application about this extraordinary episode. I mean, the people must have found an amazing... I don't know how long it took it to dawn on them what was going on. You know, at first, if you're at Southfest or something and they're feeding the food, you don't really pay that much attention to how many more hot dogs... Well, maybe these days you do, but how many more hot dogs are left in the... But eventually... You know, they must have done, where are they getting all of this food? Eventually, the miraculous must have set in. But Mark says nothing about it. That is, not yet. Because in fact, there will be two key comments about this miracle, and the similar one, the feeding of the 4,000, comes a little bit later, at two key points in the future as Jesus interacts with his disciples. There will be reflection on this miraculous episode. The first comes fairly soon at the end of the story of Jesus walking on the water, which comes next. Pastor Ben will share with us about that next Lord's Day. But since Mark's comment there relates so directly to what we're considering now, I want us to just look at it down in verses 51 and 52. After Jesus' stupendous miracle of walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee, Mark says in verse 51, Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded. But then this, because they had not understood about the loaves. In fact, their hearts were hardened. So there's something about how they had failed to rightly process about the loaves that was now impacting how they were responding to the walking on water situation. Now fast forward a little ways in the Gospel of Mark to chapter 8, which includes the similar but separate episode of Jesus' feeding of 4,000 people at one time. Right after that, in Mark 8, 14 and following, we find yet another key interaction between Jesus and his disciples that makes a very important connection with the feeding of the 5,000 and of the 4,000, another key experience that begins in a boat ride. And so in Mark chapter 8 and verse 14, the disciples in the boat ride had forgotten to bring bread. I mean, bread, that's what they ate all the time. So bread, no wonder it shows up all the time. 
They had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out, it's strong, stern language from Jesus, their rabbi. They should really, really pay attention when Jesus is saying, be careful and watch out. Be careful, Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It's because we have no bread. I wrote in my notes, I couldn't really do it, but blink, blink. Really? That's, that's what you get from Jesus' warning? That's what you think the issue is? Jesus says something so seemingly profound, the same Jesus who has miraculously fed a total of more than 10,000 people in front of you and you really think that this solemn warning relates to the fact that you 12 men forgot to bring enough bread for the boat ride. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? And then, question after question that from one point of view you might think, chill, sorry. We got, okay, we misunderstood. Do you still not see or understand, Jesus says? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven. And so the implication is, do you really think my big warning must have been about a bread supply issue? And he said to them, do you still not understand? In Matthew's account of the same poignant conversation, he puts it this way, You of little faith, why are you still talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? How is it, he says, you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? And then verse 12, finally, I wasn't talking to you about bread in, in Matthew 16, 5, but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood at least this much. He wasn't telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In Luke's account, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. It's a lot to put together, and due to the time constraint, I can only really move to the conclusions without really mapping out the process of how we get there. Jesus is very concerned even for his own disciples because he doesn't want his followers, his disciples, to become what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, yes, even the Herods. Because remember, the Herods were the rulers 
of the covenant people of God, Israel. And they had Jewishness in their lineage too. He didn't want his disciples to become what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herods had become. That's why he warns against the yeast of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herod. Yeast is a metaphor widely used throughout Scripture and almost always, if not always, in a negative sense. It, re it represents evil or error that starts small but then pervades and spreads until it takes control and it takes over. And the apostles eventually come to understand that he's referring to the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and to their hypocrisy, a kind of hypocrisy shared even by Herod. Jesus is concerned that his own disciples are vulnerable to being corrupted in this way due to their, and these are the terms he used, of them. Hardness of heart and little faith. Those are the terms he uses to describe their seriously inadequate response to the miraculous feedings that they witnessed not once but twice. It's also what prevented them from rightly responding to the entire episode of Jesus walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee. And it's what makes them so clueless now to think that he must be talking about their not having enough bread. Well then, What's he talking about? Who were the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And what meaningful characteristics did they have in common with Herod? And I think the answer is, these were all the recognized leaders of the professing people of God. The Pharisees might have been the conservatives, the Sadducees, the liberals. Herod was the Roman-sponsored king of Israel. But here's the crucial thing. They were all so corrupted the yeast had spread so far in their own hearts and lives that even though they were the rulers of the people of God, they weren't really true believers in God. They were apostates, they were fakes, they were phonies. They did not really know God, and their worship didn't really please God. And again, we're used to, when we read the New Testament, we hear Pharisees and Sadducees, we automatically think, oh, bad guys. That is not how they were regarded. They were regarded as the most devoted. The Pharisees were the separatists. They were the most consecrated. And the Sadducees were the, the priestly and the liturgical. They were viewed as exceedingly religious. And they were religious. This people honors me with their lips, Jesus would say of them specifically, specifically. but their hearts are far from me. In fact, he says in Mark 7, their worship of me, their serving me, that's what worship means, is vain. There's nothing to it, really. The yeast of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herod appears to be the perspective and practice of viewing religion and doing religion on one's own terms for one's own purposes, which ends up being a substitute for the true religion of really relating to God and really engaging with God. And that danger, that possibility, is always present among the professing people of God. 
Here he is. Jesus is God come among them. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. But it's a refusing to respond comprehendingly with understanding to the person and work of Jesus, which leads to a refusal and rejection of what it really means to know and to love and to serve him. But why would the disciples be in danger of succumbing to such unreality and hypocrisy? It means putting on a mask, presenting yourself to be other than what you really are. Why would the disciples be in danger of becoming that? Because Jesus is picking up a tendency and a habit. They aren't responding rightly and deeply with understanding to the person and works of Jesus. They weren't, even though they were around him all the time, they weren't getting it. And so Mark repeatedly records that even they have hardened hearts and little faith. For that first term, a heart is considered to be in the process of hardening when exposure to truth, especially truth about Jesus, isn't responded to rightly and fully. With comprehension and thorough application, I've got to think through what did this feeding of the 5,000, what did this miracle mean? They should have, who is this man? What does it mean? What was the symbolisms that they should have picked up on? They weren't in the process of doing that. They were connecting with Jesus in a way, but too superficial. And it wasn't changing them deeply. As for the phrase, little faith, I've been greatly helped to feel the force of that term ever since I came across a commentator who paraphrased it as someone who hardly believes, who just barely believes. They believe in Jesus, they believe in God, but just barely. Just You who just barely believe. Because you won't do what's necessary to go deep in understanding until you really grasp and really see And then you're believing about God and the things of God really changes you. Changes your whole outlook. Changes everything about you and the way that you look at life. Again, think about how it played out in the case of the disciples. They experienced those miracles. Those miracles of feeding. Surely they should have known bread supply in the boat isn't an issue with Jesus, but they hadn't even gotten that much and that far. Jesus was apparently detecting, even in his closest followers, the spiritually deadly habit of just barely believing in a way that ironically could lead to heart hardening and left unchecked that hard-hearted habit of just barely believing, of treating the person and works of Jesus way too lightly and superficially can turn a man or woman into a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a Herod. That is, into a religious person, yes. But 
a nominal, formal religion, religiousness and spirituality hijacked and commandeered for our own reasons, some self-serving purpose, but not the real religion of wanting to really, truly know God in Christ, and from that knowing to grow in trusting, loving, and serving Him. So let me ask you some application questions in general that we'll think about more together tonight. And maybe, well, let me ask you the questions I have to keep asking myself. Why do you do what you do religiously in the area of religion? Why do you do it? Why do you come to church? Why do you serve? We all know the right answers. What are you after when you worship? And what's really going on when you prepare for and then you get together for your small group or your Bible study? What is that really motivates us when we do the religious things we're supposed to do? This passage reminds me what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be all about really and truly engaging with God by relating to Jesus. Just staring at who He is and what He does and what it means. Coming to understand Jesus better. Learning about Him through all the Bible says about His attributes, His actions, His ways and His works in a way that really sinks in. Not just barely believing. In a way that leads you to not merely Barely believe with just a little faith, but to deeply believe with a belief and a faith that's really thought through as deeply as you know how to go. So that it really starts to change and transform you. And it will, if we would, so that we can really trust God and really want to honor and please Him and really can't help but love and revere Him. It's easy to say, oh, those disciples, boy, were they sick. But believe me, you and I on this side of the cross and the empty tomb, on this side of the ascension and the sending of the Spirit, and with a fully completed Bible, you and I have way more reason than those disciples on the shore of Galilee ever had for really, truly, profoundly believing in this Jesus who has shown himself so unmistakably to be the Savior we can trust and the shepherd we should follow. Because this is what our religion and our church going and our worshiping and our Bible studying and our small grouping, it's what it's supposed to be all about. To know Jesus, right as it sounds, to know Jesus and to make him known. That's what it was all about for Paul. Colossians, he says in Colossians 1, 28, we preach Christ. There's our message. There's our doctrine. Because admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. In chapter 2 he says, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. It takes comprehension. In order that they may know the mystery of God, namely... 
Christ, in whom, Paul says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says simply in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ. We don't have time, but what were the early church gatherings like? And what were they all about? Pastor Ben read, let the message about Christ. Savior, High Priest, Lord, King, Coming Judge, Shepherd, let the message about Christ dwell in you richly. as you teach and admonish one another, and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, we proclaim Christ. And so, is that really what our religion, our gatherings, our worship, our Bible studies are really and truly all about? Or do we hanker all the time something else, something more, or we're not really going to be satisfied and feeling full? What a hard-hearted, hardly believing, little faith mistake it would be to get into that habit. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let's pray. Dear Lord, it might seem unlikely. I don't know. It should have been unlikely for the disciples. They were following around. They were with them all the time.